Welcome, BHL listeners, back to another episode of the BHL podcast series. I'm your host, Scott Heidner, and it is my absolute pleasure today to be in the courthouse in Jackson County recording with my guest, Jackson County Executive and former Major League Baseball player in Kansas City Royal, Frank White. Uh, Mr. White, thank you so much for making time to sit down and visit with us. Well, thank you, Scott. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this one for a long time as well. Well, we always, you know, our most of our listeners are going to have a lot of familiarity with you. Most of our listeners followed your career with great enjoyment, but we like to uh, always give a full biographical picture of our guests and maybe uh, pull out some things that the listeners didn't know. We'd love to start all the way back uh, in the beginning. Where were you born and, and where did you grow up? Well, Scott, I was born in Greenville, Mississippi in 1950 and uh, moved to Kansas City in second grade. And... I grew up at 29th and Olive in, in Midtown, Kansas City, and went to Lincoln High School. Graduated in 1968. Very good. What uh, what brought you to Kansas City, or what brought your family to Kansas City? Oh, uh, back in those days in the, in Mississippi, everybody was sharecroppers. You know, we I, I spent a lot of time in the, in the cotton fields uh, picking cotton. My folks were uh, uh, laborers, and they decided that uh, yeah, it's time to move to where you can have better. Uh, standard of living, mm-hmm. uh, different type of jobs, and it always starts with one of your relatives uh, moving, and then they say you need to come here, and so we moved uh, in with my aunt when we first got here before they purchased their own home. And but I think it's more that migration from the south uh, to the north for better jobs and mm-hmm. and, and, and better just a better uh, way of living. And you obviously stayed in Kansas City long term. Did your family as well? They all once they came here, they were. I have a, I still have a lot of family in Mississippi. Um, uh, mostly cousins and nephews and 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 that type. Uh, I have a sister that still lives in Mississippi and a sister that lives in uh, West Memphis, Arkansas. So they still still southern ladies. But uh, here in Kansas City, uh, you know, my sibling, my siblings, my uh, my kids, every most most all all those still live here in Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Very good. Did uh, did baseball was it your passion? right out of the gate did you get the bug early or when did you start um, both enjoying and excelling at baseball well two things happened there I, I, I enjoyed baseball a lot uh, my dad you know he played amateur baseball and he was really big into baseball and we'd play catch and uh, things in the backyard and, and on Sundays he'd take us to municipal stadium to watch the A's play and and then I think uh, I started playing little league baseball around nine years old uh, back then we didn't have t-ball or anything like that and uh it was difficult starting to learn how to pitch to each other at that level because we, we they didn't have any idea how to pitch, so we would get hit a lot back in those days. But, <laughs> but I think the, the so I think the one the, the day that I really realized that uh, that I'd like this game was by I was, I was 12 years old and and I was on a good team and my dad after the third game I hadn't played and so he took me off the team and obviously you know kicking and screaming and embarrassed and so forth and and I got home and I I really had to work up enough nerve to ask him why did he take me off the team because he was really quiet and he was uh sitting there watching tv and i said i said well dad why did you take me off the team and he said well do you like baseball i said yeah he said do you uh understand baseball i said yeah you know being 12 you is yet everything and he he said well tell me how you can like baseball and tell me how you can uh understand baseball when you don't play and and so i didn't really have an answer you know, other than I was just on a good team with my friends and I was just part, you know, just happened to be a part of the team. And then he took me and put me on the worst team in the league. And I didn't, we didn't win any games, but, but I played every day 
And that's when I really had a, a bug to play baseball at that point. I'll be darned. What do you think would have happened if your dad hadn't pulled you off that better team? I probably would have still been a bench player, <laughs> cheering <laughs> for everybody else and, and never have an opportunity to uh, do anything for yourself. So, Boy, little things. That, little things, yeah. That changed the, the course of history. At 14, we won our first championship. So it was – it, it was it was a good it was a good change, uh, and that's why dads are uh, are, are good mentors. Uh, they, you can learn a lot from your dad if if he's involved and and, and really is trying to uh, push you in the right way that you want to go. Yeah, boy, that's not the truth. Uh, kind of a random question, but how old were you when you started seeing pitchers that could truly throw a variety of pitches, and you started to? to recognize that both from, you know, the release angle and on its way to the plate? Well, not so much release angles and so forth. I would say 16 mm-hmm. uh, when they started throwing. Uh, we still I, – I threw – I pitched some too, and I had a fastball and curveball, and uh, change-ups wasn't that big a pitch back in those days. It was more velocity and, and curveballs more than anything else. So you started to recognize those. Even at 14, I was throwing those. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, uh, 18, I was playing – a combination of Connie Mack League Baseball and also Van Johnson League Baseball. Van Johnson was 18 to 22, and most it was a, strictly a college league. And so a lot of those kids who were I was, I was playing against at 18 were 21, 22 years old in college, and so they had a better uh, idea how to pitch. And so you had to really uh, pay attention to what they were trying to do to you because they, they, had, a, they had an idea how to set you up and – when it throw breaking balls and things like that. So it, yeah. was, it was a big experience. Always have to play up if you want to get better. Yeah, you're going to take a little beating the first yeah. time, but, uh, <laughs> but you, do, you do get better. <laughs> well, before we get away from your childhood here in Kansas City, if you weren't playing baseball, where would folks have found you or what were your other hobbies as a kid? Well, right out of high school, I, uh, I started working for Hallmark Cards, and I, was really, I really did enjoy that job. And then when I decided to – uh, actually, I left Hallmark and went to Southern University for a little bit, play baseball, but uh, there was a scholarship mix-up. I couldn't afford to stay, so I came back home and started working at a place called Metal Protection Plating Company down on Truman Road in Chestnut. And my uh, baseball coach at that time was Hilton Smith. He was a great uh, Negro League pitcher, Hall of Famer, and he said the Royals were having tryouts for the, for the baseball academy, and you should go down and try out. So I talked my boss into two days off, and and the rest is history after that. And again, we said earlier the the amazing things that change the course of history. What if your boss had said no? It's it's. <laughs> I'd be retired doing something. Else. <laughs> <laughs> well, that may have answered the next question. I was going to ask you to share with listeners um, the chronology. Uh, you know, even growing up, listening to. Royals baseball my entire life. I don't think I've ever known. Did the minor league career come first and then your exposure to the Royals Academy, or was it the Royals Academy that then led to your minor league career? Well, Scott, it was the Royals Academy first, and I spent probably 18 months in the academy. The mm-hmm. biggest biggest thing with the academy was that uh, it, you had an opportunity to, to hone your fundamentals. You know, you're a good athlete, and you just, you just was missing that one piece of – of learning the fundamentals of what it was you're trying to do, the fundamentals of how to play baseball, whether it be throwing and fielding and base running and sliding and things like that. So don't, getting, getting those things down every day, day in, day out. Uh, and then after your second uh, spring there, then you had to go out and try to make one of your minor league teams. And that's when 
uh, things got started after that. So was the Royals Academy, there was, that was not compensated. That was you just attend to get the skills and had to hold down a job while you were at it, or did they actually pay you as a participant? Uh, the, the academy was you, – you signed a professional contract. They okay. Had, you know, we were all non-drafted free agents. Uh, they held trial camps all over the United States, and they wanted 50 guys. You had, they had, you had to have good athletic ability, but you didn't have to necessarily have a baseball background. They mm -hmm. thought that they could just take a good athlete, bring people in, uh, teach you what you need to know about playing the game, and, and they, they would find baseball players that way. So – no one ever who hadn't played any baseball ever made it past a ball. Uh, but uh, I think that the whole idea was uh, just finding good athletes. And so that's when they brought in uh, – that's first that's where I first met Ted Williams. Uh, he came in and talked to us about hitting and uh, Jim Lemon and uh, some of the great stars from uh, the wow. Washington Senators. And What year would that have been? Uh, 71. Ted uh, Williams. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. And it was like a, actually a fall. It could have been a fall of uh, seventy going into seventy one. So what was so, Ted like? Great guy. Yeah. Great guy. I mean, he was down there, talked hitting, and uh, he he just made it seem so simple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah so every time, every, so then they brought in Amos Otis and uh, the teachers about base running, and uh, they they brought in uh, Cookie Rojas. And we worked on fielding, uh, so they just used a lot of guys within the system to come down and work with us from time to time on different things. And so we just go out and experiment with them. And, and if, it, if it fit, you held on to it. If it didn't, you just you went to something else. But Did you have a sense of, of awe and amazement? Um, let me maybe paint a couple scenarios and tell me where you were mentally. Was it just, hey, I was a young man and needed a job and I needed to succeed. I really didn't have time to be in awe of these people coming in and maybe didn't appreciate it at that young age, or or did you have a real sense of, oh my gosh, that's that's Cookie Rojas, that's Ted Williams, I mean. <laughs> well, you know, the Academy itself, they, they paid us like 50 bucks a month, uh -huh. you know, uh, and every 90 days you got another $50 raise. Uh, then, um, but no, uh, I, I, uh, I respected these guys because I watched them on TV, and, and when, you, when you are in the late 60s, going into the 70s, uh, you you see guys that on TV that you definitely admire. You see the Hank Aaron's, the Willie Mays, the Roberto Clemente's, people like that. Bob Gibson's. My dad on Saturdays will have the Cardinals on one radio and the A's on the other radio. So you get to know these people through the radio. And then once you like at Municipal Stadium, we we go uh, watch the games from our high school bleachers, and then we'll go down by the door where they come out after games. And 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 that guaranteed nobody asked for autographs in those days because. You only see these guys occasionally on TV, and when they came through the door, they were like movie stars. So you more or less backed up and, and just held them in awe, more so than rushing to them with a pen and paper. Or I mean, our baseball cards back in those days, we would put in our bicycle and, and just and let them <laughs> let them make noise. So, so, so autographing was not one of the things on our agenda back in those days. Yeah, doesn't but, it? It uh, shudder to think how many Willie Mays rookie cards right. were so worn you, into tatters on the right. spokes so, of the wheels. So you, so you can only imagine when you see, you know, a Ted Williams walk in a room and. Yeah, you know that the eyes get really big, man. Because back then, you know, he was a big, uh, he's a big fisherman, mm -hmm. and and used to see him on the uh, uh, Sears Robot 
commercials, talking fishing all the time, or dealing with fishing fishing rods and and hunting and things like that. So you so you know them in a couple of different ways. Yeah, that is awesome. Well, speaking of well-known people in the Royals Academy too, uh, I will confess, doing a little research ahead of time for this podcast, growing up listening to the Royals, I knew that UL Washington had been a part of that too, but I did not know Ron Washington was a teammate of yours at the Academy. <laughs> he was our catcher. Yeah, Ron, Ron, Ron came from New Orleans, and uh, he was a – uh, raw, raw guy, not very big, uh, very quick, good arm. Uh, then he, ended, well, Ron, ended up having a really good career as a player, and then, yeah. and then as a manager, uh, uh, he, he did, he did awesome too. But, you know, UL was in the fourth class, so it was four classes, and and UL and I played together um, in the in 1980 World Series, mm-hmm. and we were actually the first uh, African American double play combination uh, in American League history to play I'll be together. Darn. In, in a World Series game, and and on top of that, had been classmates at the academy too. Uh, no, we weren't classmates. So, okay, so, so you didn't I was overlap. I was actually three years ahead of him. So okay, so he was he came he, he was in the last class and, and just kind of caught up with me. <laughs> did uh, did he have the toothpick from day one? Day was one. that always there? Day one, yes. Yeah, that's one of my favorite <laughs> memories as a kid. Yeah, so, yeah, I can't think of him without thinking of that. He says some guys chew bubble gum, some guys chew tobacco. I yeah. choose a, I choose a chew on a toothpick. <laughs> <laughs> he's probably going to live longer than all of them. Oh, he's chewing doing, on yeah, a toothpick. Yeah, he's doing great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, well, let's move on then to your, your major league time. And a lot of our listeners will know a lot of this, but if you'll humor me for just a minute, I really want to read through some of your, your bio and your accomplishments. I mean, they're just absolutely mind-blowing. Um, for our listeners that don't know, he's a five-time major league all-star. Uh, most mind-blowing statistic in my mind, of course, is eight gold gloves. Uh, and this will give away the timing that we recorded this podcast, Mr. White, but you and I were speaking a little bit beforehand about Alex Gordon oh, yeah. retiring, and will he become an eight-time gold glove winner Debate, you know, based on this year? But eight gold gloves, um, MVP of the American League Championship in 1980, uh, in the World Series uh, in 1985, which, of course, the Royals won, uh, hit cleanup for that team, and you probably know this, but I did not in my research. Do you know who the last second baseman was to hit cleanup in a World Series before you? Uh, Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, how cool is that? <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> and uh, hit the game-winning homer in the 1986 All-Star Game, hit for the cycle twice. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. What what an incredible resume um, and on that, let's let's get into your major league career. So, what year did you get called up the first time? I got called up June twelfth, nineteen seventy three. Okay. Yes. Uh, Freddie Potek had pulled a hamstring muscle, and and I came up to play shortstop. Uh, I'm embarrassed to tell you that I listened to Royals games my whole life, and I didn't remember you started at shortstop. Yeah, I came through the minors as a shortstop, and when I got to the major leagues, um, I my first. <laughs> Uh, three almost three years. I was a utility player, so I knew how to play uh, second, short, and third. Mm-hmm. And when I first got called up, I played short. And when Freddie came back, I went to third for a little bit for a couple of weeks. Then that's when Brett came up, and they made Brett the third baseman. And so for the next next two and a half years, I was a backup guy waiting for uh, Cookie to retire. Mm-hmm. And when I realized he was going to be retiring, then I just said, "I said, well, I got to learn how to play second base." And so in, in the winter time, I went to Venezuela two winters in a row. And then I went to Puerto Rico one winter, 
uh, just learning how to play second base. And then when he retired after the 76 season, and that's when I uh, started playing every day at second base. Preparation meets opportunity. All the time. All the time. All the time, yes. Uh, well, let's talk for just a minute about that. So, uh, you know, listeners, including me, it's just impossible to think of a Frank White or George Brett or, a, you know, Willie Wilson or Dan Quisenberry and the extraordinary popularity and, and love that the Royals fans have for you gentlemen but if for those that will remember all the way back, Cookie Rojas was a tremendously popular royal. Yes, he was. Was it hard filling those shoes? Extremely hard. Um, I, I think I think I think people um, they always say, "Well, you took Cookie's spot, so we love Cookie, and you were a rookie, you were unheralded, uh, even though you're from Kansas City, they didn't see you as that guy." Mm-hmm. And and I was a little disappointed in, in the fans, too, because I thought they would embrace me a little bit differently because it wasn't like I took his place and they sit him on the bench. You know, he actually retired. Mm-hmm. And so I figured that, okay, then I've got I've to earn, earn my way here. There's no free lunch. I've got to show people that uh, I can play this position and, and play it well. And eventually they, uh, they came around. I, my first year playing every day, I uh, won my first first gold glove, made seven errors on the year, and from then on, things got a lot better. By the end of the first year, did it feel like the crowd had transitioned with you I by think the so. time the first yeah. year was over? <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, you know, you, as a young player, you struggle offensively at first, and then I think I really battled back to about 245 and and won my first gold glove and, and followed that with five more in a row, and, and people after that, that round, yeah. they, were, they, were, they were in pretty good shape and, and liking me at that point. Was, uh, was Mayberry playing first at that time? John was first baseman, yes. Yeah, uh-huh. So you and, and Mayberry and Brett all in the same infield. Yeah, yeah. And Freddie Pontek was at shortstop. It was a very good infield. I should say so. My goodness. Uh, what was the hardest part about transitioning from the minors to the majors? I know folks – Throw harder, run faster, the whole nine yards. But what was the biggest challenge and change? Uh, I think expectation, um, uh, accountability. Uh, I think when you get at this level, um, it's easier to get here than to stay here. And once you get here, you want to figure out what do you have to do to stay because you don't want to go back to the minor leagues. And and you just figure that uh, you have to be consistent in what you do. You have to – take advantage of every opportunity that you get. Uh, when I was a utility guy, every time I had the chance to play for someone, I wanted to play well and, and just keep really building your stock with the fans. And, and, and I think that uh, when, when you start playing at this level, people say, what's the biggest challenge? Uh, my biggest challenge was once you set a standard to play, the biggest challenge was meeting that standard every single game. Because once you set an expectation for the fans, then they want to come and they want to see that. They want to see you be that guy. And so it wasn't the fastballs and the curveballs. And it's really just that that desire every night to be that guy that people come to see. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting answer. That's in some ways almost a more thoughtful answer than the sort of the typical, well, they throw harder, there's you know, more <laughs> bite on the breaking ball. Um, and I've just as a spectator, I've always thought – Baseball, more than the other sports, what an incredible amount of mental discipline and toughness it takes because you're playing ten times as many games as a football season and twice as many as a basketball season. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you're, and, and, Scott, you're competing against 
everything. You compete against scouting reports. You're competing against the catcher, the pitcher. And on uh, defense, you're competing against uh, the, the game situation and what the hitter's trying to do. And, and your anticipation skills have to be very good. And, and you always have to be aware of what, what teams are trying to do to you. Offensively, you're trying to be aware of what's the defense giving me. And then you try to exploit that. So it, it, to me, I thought it was just a, a, a fun game for uh, challenging you mentally. Um, and, and it's a great game for allowing you to be an individual player and a team player at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I, I really enjoyed, I, I enjoyed it a lot. And the people, if they knew how to watch baseball, they would enjoy it a lot more. They wouldn't think it's too long or, or too slow. You know, they would say, because you, you got to be able to see the strategy and um, you have to be able to anticipate uh, what the other team is trying to do uh, in, in certain situations. Uh, so learn, learning what the count means and what may happen in certain counts and things like that. So that, to me, that was, that's, that's what the fun was all about. Yeah. And, I, boy, that just really touches on something I feel passionately about, and that is that baseball is an incredibly elegant intellectual game if you truly understand all the dynamics that are in play on every pitch and every count and every game script situation and it just my two cents there is nothing better than to get into a conversation with a group of people who don't think baseball games last too long when you find those people that can listen to a three hour and 15 minute game and they don't feel like that was too long because they they nursed the the enjoyment and the details and the nuance out of that entire game. When you can find those people to talk baseball with, mm -hmm. that's a treasure. Well, you know, I agree with that, Scott, all the way. Uh, when I in the winter times, we would have what we call winter caravans, and we would go uh, around this, around our listing area and uh, sign autographs and get people kind of fired up for spring training and. And, you know, when you go to uh, communities where you go into nursing homes or you go into uh, senior uh, living facilities and, and those people who are not, not as mobile and they, they, they live through listening to the games on the radio and you can't play a game long enough if, uh, for those folks. And, and they know all the intricate details. They, they fall in love with players through the radio. And, and it's amazing how... Uh, how how they held on to the game back in those days, and and when you go to visit, they would rather sit and and talk about something you did, than have you sign an autograph, or they rather have you take a photo with them or something like that. So, but just to hear them talk talk the game and and relive some of the stories that they're telling you, mm -hmm. uh, some of their best moments on listening on the radio, and how these this games get them through. Uh, through through the summer mm -hmm. because they love listening on radio, love, love, love listening to baseball. Uh, I remember hearing my dad talk about being out on the tractor, and he's like, the only <laughs> only thing that would come in on the radio was baseball. Yep. And, that was uh, fun stuff. It was the Cardinals when he was a kid, even though he grew up here because that's all there was. And um, it, Bob Costas, I think, was the one that said this. Part of the reason that he believes baseball used to be America's most popular sport and, and it has fallen behind in those rankings, and I agree with this sentiment, I really do. I'm not sure. So, obviously, America has transitioned from consuming a lot of sports through radio, and now it's all TV and digital and satellite. Uh, there's never been a game more suited to being described over radio 
than baseball. Oh, there's so much to talk about. There's, yes. there's so much to see. And yeah, uh, you, if you listen on radio, I mean, there's such a great opportunity to set the stage for. Uh, I mean, when I used to watch, uh, I used to have a transistor radio. I kept under my pillow on my bed, and 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 I'd, I'd listen to it. But I would, I would listen. You know, they don't uh, broadcast this way anymore. Uh, because in the old days, the announcer would say, and here's the pitch, or here's the wind-up, here's the pitch. And so now you're listening for the sound of the ball coming off the bat. But now they don't, they don't do that very much. They'll just say, uh, strike one. You know, they don't, really, they don't really take you inside the game anymore on, because they're getting to the next commercial or whatever. But uh, I mean, when I used to do radio, there a lot of times uh, uh, the radio was still being in commercial break. And you've already got one out on the field, so the the announcer's got to come back and and re-describe for you at home on on radio what what's what's happening as if it's happening right now. Yeah. Uh, so that to me that was uh, the thing as a kid I enjoyed most was uh, here's the wind up, here's the pitch, listen for the sound of the mm-hmm. ball coming off the bat. So uh, nobody taught me more about baseball growing up than Denny Matthews and Fred White. Mm-hmm. Oh, Fred! Fred is awesome, and I. And I want, I want to be the first to say on your podcast that I really believe that uh, the Royals should put Fred in our, in our Hall of Fame. Uh, I would love to get behind a campaign to, to get him into the Hall of Fame. I, I thought he was wonderful, and, and his voice was awesome. I mean, when I had my statue dedication at the stadium, I, I had him MC the event because I just admired him so much. I, well, if you get a campaign going, I hope you will <laughs> let me know. My first... So I grew up a Royals fan, bleed royal blue, always have, still do, good times and bad. And the first time I remember being upset with the organization was when I got the news that Fred White wasn't coming back. Mm -hmm. That was devastating. I I think from a player's perspective, that that hurt a lot of players too because Fred was not only good, but he was fair. Uh, He understood the game. He was very... uh, very, very community-minded. I know at the end of every year, we would go to Wichita and play a charity golf tournament uh, for Rainbow, Rainbow School. And, and then Fred was a big uh, pheasant hunter, so we'd go pheasant hunting together. And I mean, to me, that was the best thing about that group we had back in those days. Like, Whitey was a manager, and, and we'd go hunting with Whitey, fishing with Whitey, go with, with uh, Fred to do his deal. Because we had a lot of hunting, hunters and fishing within our group. Mm-hmm. And so we, we just had that close bond back in those days. That is awesome. Well, uh, I don't want to dwell too long on that. I want to respect your time, but I, I will say again, uh, your thought that Fred White needs to be considered pronto for the Hall of Fame, I could not agree more. And back on the point that really brought us to this, I also appreciate your comments and think they are so true that baseball, uh, the original baseball broadcasters were teachers mm-hmm. as, as much as they were you know, informers and entertainers, um, which was awesome. Well, speaking of managers, let's segue. We talked about Whitey Herzog already, but who were all the managers you played with during your tenure as a Royal? Oh, my gosh, guys. <laughs> or, or a few of them, if, if not all of them. A few. <laughs> yeah, on, on a major league level? Yeah, major league uh, level. Uh, first, I started with uh, Jack McKeon, which uh-huh. I really liked a lot. And from Jack, uh, Jack and Whitey were – uh, similar in a way that they they love young players and they would let young players play the game. They didn't micromanage. They said go play and as long as you're making good decisions, you'll never hear from me. I, I really like those two guys for that. Uh, after Whitey, uh, we had Dick Hauser. Dick Hauser, I thought was uh, 
the most insightful manager that I played. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Jim Fry, because Jim Fry went mm -hmm. to we went to the '80 World Series with Jim, and then in '81 they brought in uh, Dick Hauser, and he saw more in me as an offensive guy than any of the other managers. And in 1983, George got hurt, so he moved me into from eighth to third in the lineup, and I went on to be player of the year that year. And then the next year, um, uh, got hit 17 home runs the next year, the next year 22, and so and had 22 back-to-back -back years. So he saw more in me as a veteran guy because he came from the Yankees, and, and the Yankees didn't deal with young guys. They wanted the, the guy that was already ready to play because they want to keep winning. And so he knew how to handle uh, veteran guys. He knew how to get the most out of veteran guys. And even when he brought me in his office prior to the World Series and said, I want you to bat fourth for me in the World Series. And I'm saying, oh, boy, George should be doing this, not me. You know, but George, I said, if George is hitting fourth and we got a man on third and less than two outs, they're going to pitch to me. But if it's George there, they're going to walk him to pitch to me. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. but, so I thought having that protection of him behind me would give me better pitches to hit. But George... I uh, didn't want to move, and so I told Dick, I said, I'll hit fourth, and if I do well, they'll write about it, and if I don't, they'll say I should have been there in the first place. So, <laughs> so, so I went into it with the right, uh, the, right the right mindset and didn't did put a lot of pressure on myself, and, and, I, and I was determined to not take on a persona that wasn't mine. And, you know, I, I said, you, you, you still got to be the player you are. You can't do any more than uh, what – what the what your abilities allow you to do you can't just say i'm hitting force well now i'm gonna be john mayberry or something like that you just if you got a bunch you bunch. if you got a hit and run you hit and run so just do the things that you that you've always done and that's why i was able to uh, uh lead the series in rbi and and then hit the one home run in st louis which i thought was just pretty pretty special <laughs> i can only imagine that is awesome so uh do you remember the moment you got the news that coach hauser was sick Yes, it was right after I went to the '86 All-Star Game with him, and um, it was just right after that game. Uh, and then the next day, uh, we flew home. The next day, and he was already in Kansas City. And then when we got home for the next workout, then that's when everyone uh, found out for sure. Did you know right away that it was serious, or? Well, I think anytime you got cancer in the brain, it's serious. And if you got to have an operation, you know those are, you know, the medical. F feel back in that <laughs> we've advanced let's say we've advanced a lot since then and uh but but we we knew definitely it was serious back in those days did he know it was serious before he let others know did he keep that to himself for a while or did he share that pretty quickly once he knew uh i don't think anyone knew uh there was some times during the game where he might have called somebody by a different name but mm -hmm. uh it was that was pretty noticeable but but i think that once he uh got here and got diagnosed i think that's when he really found out for sure too so i, I don't we never did hear about anything prior to that game or anything like that whether yeah. he was having any any issues or not who uh and then who after dick hauser uh managed during your career oh let me see there was billy gardner who i managed who, who, I, who was my manager in double a baseball and mike forever for a little bit uh then john wathan uh john was was my last manager uh, and before I left, former teammate, of course, obviously uh -huh. too. Uh -huh. That's an interesting dynamic, I'm sure. Uh, well, I'm almost tempted to ask you who was the most fun to play for, but it's clear that you had a great relationship with a lot of these folks. Oh uh, yeah, I just said, let me play. We're good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. There's some some great names in that list. Uh -huh. um, did you sense a turn? Um, I don't want to call it a turn. Did you sense a change and a growth and an evolution in the fan base as you went from 
uh, I say you, the Royals went from being <clears throat> a franchise that, uh, you know, struggled initially and then you were competitive and then you were regular postseason participants all the way up to the series. Could you feel the fan base evolve and grow during that time or was it more subtle than that? Uh, you, you can kind of feel it leading into the 76 season. I know that 73, we had made some trades and brought in Hal McRae and uh, and some guys uh, from Cincinnati, Wayne Simpson, and then we had Amos who came from the Mets and John Mayberry from Houston. Cookie Rojas came in from Philly, I believe. And Freddie came in from Pittsburgh. So it just took a little while for that to come together. And then, then, then 73, then we had Lou Pinella and... Uh, so we just sort of had a good team in 74, 75. And then in seven, we made another trade. I think Lou got traded to the Yankees, and, and we just kept adding to it. And we, you could see the, uh, the young players getting better. And we had, you know, Dennis Leonard came up in 74, Al Cowens. Uh, then Amos was there. So we just it, just, it just seemed like it was just coming together at the right time. And, and then in 76, when we uh, went to our first uh, playoff against the Yankees, then you could really see it then. You know, Quisenberry was coming on and, uh, the, in, in the next year. And then we had Mark Hotel as our closer in 76. So I think, I think you could see it. Uh, and then in 77, uh, we came out and uh, we won 102 games that year. So it just started building. I, th I think I think the, the first 76, 77, and 78, I think the fans were really on uh, on, on cue for us uh, because it seemed like there was only two teams, the Royals and the Yankees. Mm -hmm. And and after uh, <laughs> then after losing three consecutive years to the Yankees, uh, I mean, it was probably more than fans' heart could take. <laughs> <laughs> It was more than it was more than our hearts could take, but uh, but in 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 '80, uh, it was it was us in the Yankees again, and it seemed like everywhere I went, it was like, God, you guys can't let this happen again. There's no way you can let these Yankees beat you again, and so that's probably the most pressure as a team we felt uh, ever, I believe. Yeah, I mean that was one of the few times where guys were um, in their lockers, everybody was quiet, everybody was focused, everybody was uh, you didn't hear the same chitter chatter that you usually hear and. And, uh, and then we went on to, uh, to sweep the Yankees in three games. So that was, that was very special. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the first – before game one, you know, I just had a hard time uh, – it's a hard time sleeping. Uh, and so I had my wife take me to the park about 6 in the morning, and I got on the training table and, and went to sleep just like that. So I figured that's where I needed to be. <laughs> so, no kidding. Yeah, so it was it – was, uh, everybody has their own uh, – Emotional levels that, that you go through, and, uh, you know, the adrenaline is unbelievably off the charts uh, in those times, and you have to, if there's one thing I, uh, you could, if you could bottle and, and, and sell it would be adrenaline. I mean, adrenaline is an amazing thing uh, to have working for you. The thing is, though, you have to be able to control it, because as fast as it'll give you the high that you need, it could also give you the low that you don't need if you don't... Uh, let it out and, and a little bit here, a little bit there. So you can get so excited. And I mean, the first game I played, I, I, I went from a high and about at the end of the third inning, I was at a low. I had to struggle to get through the game. But uh, then I realized that I was just uh, burning my energy too fast. So I had to learn how to uh, control it a lot better than I did the first game. Yeah. Well, you know, the the question about the fan bases – you know, evolving and growing love for the team. 
there was a lot of commitment to that team in the late 70s and you can still feel it today because uh, so many Royals fans that were fans in that era today, including me, <laughs> still can't stand the Yankees. <laughs> Just can't stand them. Well, and that all stems nobody from wants those to, years. Nobody, well, the, the, it goes way back, you know, when the, when the Yankees, when they had the Kansas City Blues. Mm-hmm. And they were like a farm team for the Yankees. And so it's like – and then the Yankees were taking players from Kansas City. And then when Kansas City got his own team, it, it just made it that much uh, uh, of a rivalry. Yeah. And uh, I agree with you. The Yankees are – when things get tough, you always think about playing the Yankees. It puts you in the right frame of mind. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend of mine who about – I would say three or four times a year, just randomly, he pulls up the video of Hal McRae sliding into second base. <laughs> it just puts him in a better mood. It really does. It really does. So, yeah. And, you know, to the maybe to the Yankees' credit, it, it doesn't come easy for me to say anything positive about the Yankees, but maybe to their credit, they did have quite a cast of characters that made them easy well, to hate. Billy well, Martin. You, you, and, you know, they, you and know. they and they always um, – seem to get what they want you know they yeah. winning was always the ultimate goal and and if they needed it they got it where your smaller market teams you're kind of stuck with what you have so so when whenever we played the yankees and they had gossage as a as closer you we knew we only had about six innings to get what get done what we need to get done because he was going to come in and shut things down and 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 the closers back in those days pitched three innings uh and and so when he came in, you know, it was going to be difficult to score a bunch of runs. So you had to kind of work your way to, to keep him out of the game by scoring runs. But it was a great challenge. Yeah. Great, greatest challenge of my life, I think. Just just those battles, those battles with the Yankees. Yeah. I, if, I mean, I realize my perspective is clouded by being growing up here. But for my two cents, that Royals-Yankees rivalry is my favorite sports rivalry of all time. Oh, it was great. Yeah, Yeah, it was great. Well, who were some of the uh, both folks that you played with and the folks you played against? Who were some of either the most fun guys to play with, like they enjoyed the game and they made you enjoy the game, and or guys whose um, intensity and dedication always kind of gained your admiration um, whether they were guys you played with or played against well it's a little bit of both because uh our team uh we played with that intensity and uh we but we had a whole lot of fun too and winning creates that and you know you had mayberry and, and amos and george and uh, hal mcray you know these guys uh were off the charts aggressive and when willie wilson came in and ul those guys i mean we just had guys who loved breaking up double plays. You know, they loved running over <laughs> catchers. They, you know, they, and we had pitchers that uh, didn't mind knocking people down and, and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, but if you other other teams, uh, you know, I was fortunate that I uh, had a chance to play against some teams. I mean, not teams, but players out of the '60s. And when I came up in '73 and went to Baltimore the first time, I mean, I was I was like in hall cabin in Baltimore because. Uh, they had everything that I ever wanted to be in a ball player. They had great defense. I mean, they had uh, a gold glove infield. They had a gold glove center fielder, gold glove pitchers, and and they and they won. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I think they beat the Royals like 20 times in a row before the Royals finally got on wow. track. 
and Frank Robinson was my favorite player, and and he was there on that team, and man, it was like heaven to me when I when I saw that team. Did you get to talk to him? Yeah, but you know, back in those days, those those veteran guys, they wouldn't talk to you if you was a rookie. You, you know, they they kind of they kind of gave you a little head head nod or anything like that. But I and I told him, I said, "Well, you're my you're my idol. You're my favorite player." He's like, "Okay, okay, young man, okay." But then I was up, I was playing shortstop, and he was on first, and and I'm still like, "God, Frank Robinson on first base," you know, and ground ball to second base. I go to try and double play. He knocks my button center <laughs> in left field. <laughs> And I, I looked up. I said, "I don't think I like you too much." Anymore. <laughs> but, but then you, you then you realize that you know you, if you're going to be starstruck, do it on the sidelines. You can't, you can't do it in the game. So oh, that's great. So that was a great lesson to learn right there. Yeah. Was that? Um, boy, I shouldn't even offer this without looking it up. But um, my memories of the Orioles second baseman Bobby Gritch. So well, right. David, was that, David Johnson before Bobby. I was going to say, was it before his time? And then and Bobby came after Davey. Uh, Bobby was there. Uh, Bobby was a Gold Glove winner, too, at second mm-hmm. base for uh, Baltimore. And then then I said to myself, uh, I said, if I'm ever going to win a Gold Glove, I've got to be better than Bobby. And when Free Agents first started in 77, Bobby got drafted by – not drafted, but he got picked up by uh, the Angels. Mm-hmm. And when he went to the Angels, he, they, they wanted him to play shortstop. Then I said, okay, if you're going to do it, now it's time to do it. And that's when I got busy. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, that's great. Right. I sure remember his name coming through the airwaves, though. Oh, yeah. Uh, so many names from that era. This is more my memory bank. but you yeah, know, Very, Bobby. very, very, very tough players. I mean, Don Baylor was, was very yeah. – well, I mean, breaking up double plays with a passion of his. And, and you know uh, – Brian Downing, he was a very aggressive. Dwight Evans. Uh, so you had some guys that really came down there looking to do damage. When when they, I mean, even <laughs> even when Kirk Gibson came up, I mean, he was he was a hard nosed player. So there was a lot of a lot of hard nosed players back in those days. Uh, the other thing I remember most about Don Baylor, it almost seemed like he wanted to get hit by a pitch. Well, you know, at first he didn't like it too much. He because yeah. he, he used to fight, <laughs> but after a while, I think he got. Okay, I'm, I'm 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 on this trek now, so let's go. But yeah. I know I know in '76, uh, Dennis Leonard hit him in a in a playoff game in Oakland and uh, started a. I'm sorry, it wasn't a playoff game. He hit him in a game in Oakland and started a big brawl uh, in Oakland in September one year. So he he was he wasn't always okay with getting hit. So it, it was a little bit different. <laughs> I just remember him looking so fearless up there like yeah. you know he knew the pitch was coming inside and mm-hmm. he didn't care no not after a while he didn't but uh, yeah. earlier he was a little different you know one of the toughest guys uh i i thought I, I was able to play against was willie horton you know willie was just just a, a, a just a block of a guy just strongest he ever strongest guy you ever want to see but uh but uh, he was he was a he was a guy that I never never wanted to get into a fight with. I seen him in action. He just like the Tasmanian devil, <laughs> you know. He's spinning through the crowd, players flying all over the place. <laughs> he didn't want to make that guy mad either. <laughs> you know who I think I enjoyed watching from the opposing teams who I enjoyed watching play most in that era. Uh, boy, he did a lot of damage against uh, against us against the Royals. But boy, I could watch Rod Carew hit oh. all day long. What a, what a relaxed guy. Yeah, I mean he he was all hands and he, he manipulated the bat. Excellent bunner, ran well. 
uh, stole home all, all the time. Yeah, perennial base runner. I mean, he, I mean, those guys. You know, they was hitting like 340, 350, and 360, and uh, then you know, it seemed like the Twins always had great hitters on their team. Tony and, Oliva. Uh, yeah, Tovar. And yeah. They just kept Bobby Doran, uh, Killebrew, all those guys, and then when Bert Blylevin came up, he was nasty when he came up. Great curveball. Uh, but uh, yeah, it just seemed like that the, there was the guy, just the guys that we played against was just. Just awesome baseball players. Yeah. Awesome baseball players. Yeah, it seemed like with Rod Crew, of course, you know, defenses didn't shift like they do now, but even the slightest replacement uh, of a defender just seemed like Rod Crew saw it and made you pay. I tell you what, he was, he was a magician with the bat. Yeah, he was. You know, it's sort of like Tony Gwynn. You know, Tony Gwynn <laughs> was uh, similar, but, but Rod was probably the most relaxed hit I've ever seen um, and, and could do anything he wanted to at the plate. Yeah. Well, last question about players, and I'll move on. But uh, who are a couple of guys that you played with that were not gifted with the physical talents and so didn't have prolific careers that everybody would remember? Guys that, if they had not had the tenacity and the effort they had, might not have even hung on in the big leagues, but you admired for just that incredible work ethic and produced a, a major league career from it. Oh, that's a great question, Scott. I, I tell you, you know, you, you had pitchers who were that way. Um, you know, Quisenberry was probably the the number one guy that comes to mind uh, when he's throw over the top. Uh, he didn't have a lot of success. And then he made the adjustment to throw down under. And from there, he went on to be uh, one of the greatest relievers in the game. Uh, he would be he would be probably number one uh, in that area. Um, I, I don't, you know, it, it's just kind of hard because baseball is one of those games where uh, you don't survive long if you don't, if you have, if you, if you're missing one skill and somebody else has that one skill and you got guys that went on to be very good uh, utility players. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I can't put my finger on yeah. a, a lot of players. I know Hal McRae was a guy that we got him from Cincinnati. He struggled his first year. He worked hard with uh, Charlie Lau. And um, then all of a sudden, in 75, 76, uh, he and George, they, they were on the same schedule with, Ch with Charlie. They went down to the last day for the batting title. It was between Brett, McRae, and Carew. And, and I, I would say that was a big transformation for him. Uh, even George himself, uh, when he came up, uh, hit two probably 280 uh his first first year or so and then got with charlie and charlie you taught him how to use the whole field and and uh he went on to you know to do do great things uh as a hitter and so i think any young player who struggles early and is willing to make that a change make that adjustment to be uh uh to listen to the coach and make that change, those two guys would probably be the two best I think I've seen. Yeah, and that's interesting. You know, listeners, a lot of listeners will just remember how great they were. Sometimes they lose sight of how much they had to learn and how hard they had to work the, to the get struggle, there. The struggle is real, as yeah. they say. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, well, let's maybe wrap up your Royals career because we've got a lot of other great things we want to talk about as well. But um, just to wrap up, you know, all of these things culminate, obviously, a member of the Royals Hall of Fame. Uh, I have several colleagues and I would – you talked about a campaign to get Fred White in the Royals Hall of Fame. 
there's a few of us ready to write a strongly worded letter of protest to Cooperstown about getting you in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. But you've got your number retired here, um, and uh, I know it brings a lot of joy to a lot of longtime Royals fans that we also get to walk by your statue at Kauffman Stadium when we go to those games. Uh, marks of, a, of an incredible career for sure. But that's just the beginning of your story. Uh, you retired from baseball as a player and went on and had uh, a prolific coaching career as well, spent some time with the Red Sox. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Royals, uh, managed the Wichita Wranglers. Uh, you were in the Kansas City front office and then a broadcaster, so filled all kinds of shoes after your playing career as well. Um, yeah, give us the, the short 4 one on on that career progression. Well, I mean, if I had to uh, describe it um, in, in a few words, it's just that I've just uh, – I've always been – as a player earlier and during my career, I've always been a player that could adapt. You know, if, if whether it be hitting eighth, hitting ninth, hitting first, hitting second. And once I got out of the game, uh, you always heard that if, you had a, if you're a great player, you don't make a good manager because you don't explain the game the way uh, it should. You can't deal with mediocrity uh, uh, like guys who, who's had that struggle. And so I was just determined to prove that I, uh, I, I am that guy because I, didn't, I wasn't a, a bonus baby. And I, I signed for 50 bucks a month, and I went through the academy. I went through the minors. I did all the, the struggles everybody else struggles with. And so that's when I decided to manage uh, uh, in Wichita. And, and, and I was fortunate enough to manage some very good players. And, and in 76, had all had pretty much every number one draft choice in our system, and we went to the playoffs that year. So, and that's, that's when I had Alex's first year, Billy Butler, uh, Mitch. You Meyer. coached those guys in Wichita in 70, in, in 2006. Yes. Wow, mm -hmm. that's yeah. awesome. So, I had, well, Alex had a, a, a great year, hit 28 home runs, and and Billy led the league in hitting, and I had uh, Zach Greinke was on that team, and uh, wow, Luco Shaver. Uh, so uh, yeah, it was it was a good ball club. And, Holy and cow! So we had uh, we had, we had fun that year. That's a lot of horsepower. Mm -hmm. with those guys. Yeah, it was fun. The first stop though were the Red Sox. Was that the first coaching pit stop for you? Yeah, I I was the nineteen ninety was my last year here with the Royals, and mm -hmm. uh, I knew Luke Gorman. He was our general manager here, and he was at, he was at the Red Sox. And so after I left the Royals, I sit out the 91 season because I was just trying to get over baseball, trying to be a player. And Lou offered me uh, a managing job in, uh, with the Red Sox in AAA. And I said, Lou, I don't want to go to AAA. I want to go to rookie ball because in rookie ball, you have to do everything. You have to do all the administrative stuff. You have to, and, and all, you know, you just, you're just more involved with uh, the mechanics of the team and, and we're in AAA, the guys are there, you're just a coach and, and but in, in the minors, you, you, in the lower minors, you're dealing with a lot of things, high schoolers for the first time, homesickness, dear John letters, you know, every, everything, that, <laughs> everything that you have to deal with uh, at that level, it was a great experience. So I started in, uh, in rookie ball with them and uh, then the, in, in, in 94, uh, they called me and asked me if I would coach first in the major leagues. So I coached first in 94, 95, and 96. And then I left after there and came back to Kansas City and started coaching for the Royals in 97, halfway through the season. Uh, did you enjoy uh, 
what brought you more joy, I guess, between coaching and broadcasting? What what made you look forward to coming to the ballpark most? Oh, both of them actually. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, as as a coach, you you can't wait to get to the ballpark because you, especially if you got young young players that you like to work with and and you see them progressing. And uh, I did like that part of the game a lot. And what made it fun uh, in Kansas City because a lot of guys I had I had in the minor leagues, which made it a lot easier. Uh, and and I, I got them. I got to see them in the, when I was in the front office. I would visit in the minors and evaluate and and things like that. So when they, so when I got a chance to manage some of those young guys, and it made it a lot a lot easier. Cause I started managing in Wichita in ninety in ninety in two thousand four. So I was there two thousand four, five, and six. So I had uh, some uh, some decent players. So it was a lot yeah. of fun. Well, I have to say, on a personal note, um, I was a huge fan of your time in the broadcast booth. Um, this is just personal preference. Everybody looks for something different. But, you know, I like announcers that while they have passion for their home team and they want to see them succeed, I like a, a broadcaster who's a teacher. Who's not a homer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I know what you're yes. Yeah. And, and, and so they've got that, you know, um, critical eye. They're willing to praise as well as comment, whatever, but also to teach. And I, I felt like I felt that way listening to Fred White and Denny growing up. And I felt that way with you too. Uh, you know, I wasn't just being entertained, which I was, but I was learning. You know, as a fan, I was growing in my understanding of the right. game and, and well, appreciated that, was, that, that was, so much. That was, my, uh, that was my goal every night. Um, I know my first game ever with Ryan, um, you know, we, we usually you study the same books and you go to the same place for all your information on players, their backgrounds, their families, and, and so forth. And, and I uh, was in my first game with Ryan, and so he was talking about uh, – where they went to school and he gets in all that and and so I said Geez, I, I saw, I'm, I, he knows what I know or I know what he knows so it wasn't anything different and so I uh, I said well I think I'm just going to be a coach up here and and so I started looking for things that my whole my whole objective on on replays because uh, I talked to the truck and I said well show me the replay quick because I want to be able to start talking about the replay before it came back on the air uh, and, and have to start it all over. I want to be all the way into it before it shows to you on TV. But I wanted to find something within that replay that I saw, but maybe you didn't see from home. I wanted you to go, oh, yeah, okay, I see it. So that was my, that was my goal every night, just to be, able to be a coach from the booth. And, and, but it kind of got me in trouble because <laughs> – some of the coaches on the field thought I was undermining them and things like that. And I said, "Well, these things should be teaching anyway." But, but, uh, but, well. but that was that was fun for me, just being able to point those things out and 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 let people, whether it be footwork or glove work or decision making or or things like that. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I I think it maybe comes back a little bit too. We talked earlier about. You know, there's two different kinds of fans. There are the fans that think a three-hour baseball game is way too long, and then there are fans that think three hours flies by because mm -hmm. they love the game so much. Uh, I think the folks in that latter group, yes. including me, appreciated your approach in the booth a lot. Oh, yeah, I had a ton of fun. I mean, it's, uh, it, I think any time you, you have an opportunity to take the game inside – 
the house, inside the radio, inside the TV. Uh, I think that is uh, what gives you that little bit extra that somebody else. I mean, I mean, I mean, some 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 analysts or or hyper. Um, they comment on everything. They they gloss over things. They don't really explain the replay. They don't break it down to the people that are watching the game. And I think that takes something away from the game. That that makes the game more commercial. It makes it more of a marketing thing where everything's rosy mm-hmm. and everything's not rosy. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you you start to alibi things that don't need to be alibied, um, and you 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 lose that uh, that little bit element of accountability that you that that a player should have on every situation. Uh, we didn't congratulate guys for failure we 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 just basically uh say the next guy let's pick this guy up or something like that but but sometimes we're too uh too easy to uh to congratulate guys on failure when guys don't want to be congratulated on failure so uh, one last comment and i'll pull my teeth out because i could talk about this for a (laughs) long time but i think it's also a disservice to the game of baseball, the, that approach of just being nothing but a cheerleader and a whatever. And, and here's what I mean by that. If baseball is going to continue to endure and develop a true fan base, people that aren't just a fan of this team and that team, but are a fan of the game. The game. If we're going to have that, then those fans from the time we're all little kids listening on the radio – we need to be learning about the real game, the nuances of the game, because that's where the greatest love of the game comes from. And only when broadcasters are also teachers mm-hmm. do we get that full experience. You, I do not believe that the rah-rah broadcasters are doing us a favor setting baseball up to be successful 30 years from now. They're creating people that know how to cheer for one team mm-hmm. but not necessarily milk the true love of the game. Well, you have to give the other team credit. I mean, you have to point out good plays. You have to point out smart plays. And and I think that is uh, one of the uh, elements that I used to like about baseball because you play against guys, but you also appreciate – uh, the player that plays at that next level, like I used to love uh, watching Kirby Puckett or, you know, or Ken Herbeck or somebody like that. Uh, so you pick out guys that uh, that you know come to beat you every day, mm-hmm. and and then you try to learn something from from those guys through your conversations before the game or or something like that. So I don't think we ever quit learning. I think we always have to keep trying to figure out what makes this guy better. Uh, and you try to figure out is, is it something he has that I don't have? Is it, do I need to uh, ask a question to, f- to, to get to where he's at, or do I have to just uh, get on his level to see where he's at? So it's it's comp- competi- competing is uh, is an amazing thing uh, when you approach it the right way, when you approach it to be better, and you approach it with a, with a, with a humble spirit, so to speak, and. And I think that people, my dad would always say, I want you to be great at whatever you decide to do, but I want people to like you for being good at what you do. And he said, you have to be humble. You have to uh, give credit where credit's due. And, and, uh, and I think that's, uh, that was good advice from him on that. I think that advice is as good today as it was the day he <laughs> gave it to you as a young man. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think so, too. Um, one last question, then I want to shift gears uh, to the, the current stage of your okay. career in public service. Mm-hmm. 
but we've talked a little bit about some of your, your mentors and heroes on the baseball field. Uh, my last question for you before we move into your public service um, part of your life is, as a broadcaster, who were a couple of the folks that you always respected, not so much listening as a kid, but when you became a peer, when you became a broadcaster too, who did you work with from any team that you appreciated their approach, um, their understanding of the game, their work ethic, their professionalism? You know, when I was uh, in a broadcast booth, it seemed like every team had that guy as an analyst uh, that really, because uh, uh, you get to talk after games, you talk during uh, the evening meal before the game, and you try to, and you, and you kind of hear, uh, if you go back and listen to games, you hear what they're saying about uh, the game itself. Uh, you know, I thought Tom Grieve was with the, with the Rangers. I, he was a former player. Mm-hmm. I always thought former players made better analysts uh, than someone who never played the game because you can actually put yourself uh, where, where they are and, and you can explain it. You can explain what they're going through. You're not guessing what they're going through. And that way you can explain it better to uh, to the fans. I mean, I thought Mark Gubazal, when he, when he started the uh, – uh, he, I thought he was very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Steve Busby, I thought was very good when he when he started playing uh, doing the announcing. So, so I think I think uh, when you when you think back to all those guys, uh, some of some of those guys were just uh, some of your play by play guys, or you know Cleveland, uh, uh, Ryan, uh, you know going all the way back to uh, oh. Just listening to Fred and Buddy Blattner and mm-hmm. and Denny, I mean, I'll, I mean, those guys are really uh, uh, storytellers. You know, they like they set the game up. You know, and and, and it's how you re- interact with your play-by-play guy. And and Ryan and I, uh, like, he'll be talking and and I'll be scanning the field and I'll be looking for things and and he'll say, I mean, one game he said. Uh, Frank, your thoughts. <laughs> so and I looked at him. I said, <laughs> I threw my hands up like, okay, I didn't hear a word you say. <laughs> and so, so, so between breaks, uh, he, 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 said, he said, I said, Ryan, I said, I, said, I said, you know, you're talking about, you know, the player. You're talking about his family. You're talking about some statistics. You, you're running through a whole bunch of things. And I'm over here looking at for other stuff on the field, game situations, things to talk about. I said, so if you wanted me to pay attention, always call my name first. And so once he does that, then I know to cue in on him uh, for what he's talking about. So, yeah. But that was our, that was the first uh, <laughs> that was the first time we worked together. So. Do you think he remembers that story too? Oh, he probably does. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, last comment on. Um, broadcasting and I'm want to move in again to your public service mm-hmm. part of your career but it's interesting too broadcasters for kids that listen a lot like I did um, broadcasters shape your perception of the sport just like the players do and there are things you talked about Buddy Blattner and Denny Matthews Fred White there were some commonalities there that mm-hmm. because that was the script I heard my whole life that's the way I feel to this day. For example, pitchers need to keep good tempo. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you've got a, a five-run lead, there's no greater sin than walking a batter. You yep. know, I mean, those those type of things. 
you know, I didn't get those from my little league coach, and I didn't get that from the players I loved. I got right. that from the broadcasters, and well, it, it's instilled. Well, that was kind of neat. I mean, when you ever listen to Harry Carey, when Harry Carey mm-hmm. was with uh, the White Sox and Jimmy Pearsall, Jimmy Pearsall is probably the most honest analyst I've ever, I've ever heard. And, uh, you know, the Yankees broadcasters were always good. Uh, I mean, you can, you can just go down. That, they had so many great guys back in those days that, that did the games. and They really did. And, you know, Hulk Harrison and listen to him. And uh, it was just amazing. To, uh, and, uh, you know, the White Sox guys were always homers, you know. So, you know, <laughs> you, know so, you know, you had, you had Hulk and Steve Stone, but those guys. But they were good, though. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you could tell they were surely for the White Sox. Yes. And, and, uh, uh, as a Royals fan, those guys could be hard to listen to for me a little <laughs> bit because they were homers and they were home team guys. Right. Um, what uh, – all right, I said this last, I'll say it again. This will be my last comment, then we're going to move on. But um, there's an app that I downloaded a few years ago. It's the MLB app on mm-hmm. your phone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you obviously get all the scores, you get stats, you get all that. But the greatest thing about it is it has uh, the radio broadcast of every game, and you get to pick which set of announcers you want to listen to. Oh, you wow. get to pick which team. And I love baseball on TV, but I love baseball on radio. Mm-hmm. And so I listen to that all the time in the background. And what a gift that is. You know, as a kid, I only got to hear Royals broadcasters and maybe another team that would come through that dial all mm-hmm. fuzzy to get to hear all of these different broadcast teams right. and pick the ones that, that I love and develop a relationship with them too is awesome i know you get to watch we used to listen to jack buck you know and i mean it just uh they they said it i mean it's anticipation uh it's what i liked about listening on radio it's mm-hmm. all the anticipated things or you know just like when a guy steals a base you know you know there he goes and you're waiting to hear the end or yes. uh I, I just i just you just don't get enough uh uh of how good it is if people can put you right into the stadium yes. on radio. That is pretty cool. Yeah. I would love they'll never be able to keep this stat, but I think it'd be a fun stat to know for true baseball fans, if you are sitting as you and I are right now in a chair and let's say we were on our patio listening to a game, I wonder how many times a game guys like you and I when, you know, Denny Matthews says, There he goes, I wonder how many times guys like you and I actually lean forward. Always, always, and yeah, you, sometimes I, you do it on. Here's a wind up in the pitch, you yes. know, and so you kind of you lean into, you want to hear it, you want to yes. hear it hit, you want to hear the ball hit the bat, you yes. know, and you and, it, and it's not artificial sound, you know, it's actually the ball hit the bat. So yeah, and oh, that that to me that <laughs> yeah. that is the beauty of the game. Because yeah, back in those days, the press boxes were so close to the field, uh, especially in Detroit and yeah. Chicago. You know, they, they they're right there, and so you could hear the actual ball hitting the bat or. Or you can hear a foul ball that rattles inside the the uh, the booth there. So yeah, Denny and Fred always told the story. I just assumed it was true that um, Detroit was the only place they ever saw a broadcaster ejected because the broadcast booth was so close. It's, it's close. They, yeah. they claimed that the umpire had heard enough and turned around and, you know, 1972 or whatever oh, that's it was. awesome. Well, uh you have been incredibly gracious um, with your time talking about the baseball side of things. And, of course, as a fan, I could go on forever listening to those stories. But um, I want to shift gears because I want listeners to also uh, let's talk about 
um, your job as county executive and your life as an elected official in public service. And I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with that, too. But for those that aren't, uh, let's get them caught up with with the post-baseball phase. Um, What drew you uh, to political office and public service? And and was it uh, a lifelong interest or was it something that really developed later in your adult years? I think it developed later. Uh, I, I was always aware of uh, local politics, uh, always because I grew up in the city, and and you always wonder why things don't get done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wonder why uh, you can't uh, get the sidewalks fixed, or why you can't get potholes fixed, or why are taxes the way they are, and, and why is it so difficult to uh, get things done in your community? And no one ever had the answers. And after I got out of, out of broadcasting, uh, there was an open seat on our legislature, and, and I was talked to uh, by a few people. I said, you should run for this seat. And so I ran for it out of curiosity more than anything else to see what this was all about. I didn't run as a politician, but just an average guy just trying to get an answer to some questions. And, and after I won that race and served on the legislature for a year, uh, then the following year, um, the, the county executive resigned and members of the legislature appointed me to this position and I really felt uh, kind of like I did in baseball that you you have to you kind of got to get in there you got to earn your stripes so to speak Uh, you don't know all the all the political savvy of things that are going on you're just sort of reading people and and but I think the biggest thing is you don't lose track of your values you don't lose track of right and wrong and and you don't you don't lose track of why are you here? What, what's your goal? And my goal has always been to improve the quality of life of people in Jackson County and, and all of Jackson County. And and I, I love this job. I mean, I, I love it because uh, you're in that position where you can help people. I, I mean, it's painful sometimes uh, because everybody doesn't share your same views. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think once you get to the end and, and you're helping people, it makes it all worth it. And that old saying is, nobody said it's going to be easy, but, <laughs> but uh, it, it's definitely worth it when you get there. And uh, it's a perfect segue. The next thing I was going to ask you was, um, what's the biggest challenge of the job that you didn't know about coming into it? Uh, dealing with other, other elected officials. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, elected officials that uh, were uh, very supportive of you running, very supportive of you getting your job, but then... Uh, not knowing that you had your own set of priorities, that your own set of things you want to get accomplished, that don't always jive with what they want to have happen. So, so then you get tested in other ways. You get tested in on your character, and you get tested on um, who's going to actually support you. So you hear, so you hear this one guy who came from a baseball field, and now you're in a different arena, and and I just try to use the same. Uh, mental strategy that I use in baseball uh, when because you, you do have to compete and but you can't lose track of uh, of your self-esteem and so you, you always have to get one p- person around you that is always going to tell you the absolute truth whether it hurts or not you got to have the absolute truth to get better and, and baseball is the same way I went to one person Hal McRae every day tell me what I need to hear not what you think I want to hear and you only can do it with one person you can't you can't you can't add people. You just gotta have one person that you truly trust to give you that advice. And so then I just uh, realized that uh, this is gonna be a battle because you're battling um, uh, you're battling age of the legislature. You're battling age of the county. You're battling uh, old practices and and what can you do to change things and how difficult it is gonna be to change things and 
And then you try to surround yourself with people that have the same goals and the same values that you have, even though uh, there are times when we all take our pain shots. But, uh, mm-hmm. but I think in the end, I think we're making headway. And, and, I, and I think that uh, you're, I think that me, myself personally, um, you know, you, what I try to do, you always try to look for ways to uh, ease through things in your mind to where you're not sitting at home and you're churning and you and you're, you're worrying about this and you're worrying about that because, you know, you know, you know that everybody's not going to agree with what you want to do. And, and, I, and, I, and I really justified that in my mind by saying, if you run for an office and, and you get 100% of the vote, then 100% of people are going to agree with everything you do. But if you don't get that 100%, so the difference between what you did get and that 100%, those people are never going to agree with what you want to do, regardless of what you do. And so then you, you focus on the majority and, and you focus on doing the right thing. And, and that's what makes me sleep at night. Yeah. You know, I firmly believe that for most difficult issues where you've got different constituencies and stakeholder groups on different points of that policy, uh, probably the truest sign that as an elected official, you've done the best you can with it is if no group is entirely happy. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I've heard that too. Yes. Yeah. You've got to find you got to find that practical compromise that everybody can live with and does the most good, and that's rarely going to make everybody completely happy. I don't think. I think you're. I think you're right on on that one for yeah. sure. Uh, yeah. What uh, What are some of the most fun things about being a county executive that you maybe didn't realize going into the job you were going to enjoy so much? Well, I've always enjoyed people. I've always wanted to be around people, and I always wanted to see people happy, and I always wanted to wake up every day, uh, just figuring out in my mind, what can I do today to make somebody's day better? Uh, I mean, you don't get into building a lot of buildings. You don't get into a lot of that uh, in, in the county, but you, all, but you do a lot of programming. You, you do a lot of things that is going to uh, give people experiences that they don't normally have. And it's just like when I grew up in the, in the city, we operated within maybe a three-mile radius, and we, didn't, we only had so many parks and so many shelters and, and so forth. So every... Fourth uh, of July or Memorial Day or Labor Day, you're fighting over the same, uh, the same parks, and and so when I got this job and realized we have a we have a, a great park system of 21,000 acres, and you know we have a golf course and campgrounds and hiking trails, we have four lakes, and and we have two beaches, and I realized that, you know, when I was a kid, I never went to the beach. Mm-hmm. And so then I started a program with summer school, uh, camp, summer camp kids and from the Urban Corps and, um, and I with the Boys, Girl, Boys Club and Guadalupe Center and a lot of the different centers in, in the city. And, and I developed a program to take these kids to Eastern Jackson County so they can experience the beach for the first time and the sand for the first time. And, and I thought that's most, one of the most rewarding things I've done. And then we had a senior program where we took seniors to our annual Christmas in the park and Christmas in, and let them drive through and the Christmas lights. And, and the first group we took out, they were so excited that they, they wanted to go through twice. So those are the things that I, I try to, the, the experiences that you, can, that you can create and develop, those are the kind of things that I look forward to doing every day. Yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, in spite of what we just talked about, the best compromises on policy, never leaving everybody totally happy, there are some things like that that are mm-hmm. just an absolute good. Well, what, um, so, you know, we've gone through your childhood and your entryway into baseball and uh, 
progress into the major leagues, then a coaching career, and then broadcasting and public service. Uh, have you ever thought about what comes next? No. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably no. good. That probably uh, means that you're fulfilled what you're doing uh, today. I, I'm excited that I've been able to uh, make so many changes uh, and, and deal with the uh, – the criticism that comes with it. Um, a lot of times when you venture into an area that you've never been before and, and you don't, it's, it takes a while to earn the respect of the people. That's all they've ever done. And I think what helps me in this job is that I'm not here to win any trophies. I'm not here to get recognition. Uh, I try to give all that to the people that work for me. And, and I think we've just got a great bunch of folks uh, on my staff. I think we got a great bunch of people that work for the county and, and, and we've just been able to demonstrate over and over again how much uh, they mean to us. I mean, we've gone from uh, $8 an hour to on a pace now where in 2022, everybody be at $15 an hour. No one now is under $11 an hour. Uh, so, so I think these are the things that, uh, that we've been able to do. We've been able to raise this for our corrections officers and, and things like that. So I think anything that does that gets into the area of healthcare. So we've mm -hmm. done a great job on our healthcare for our associates and and just and really really Scott just uh, just improving the quality of life of, of our folks and and our legislature they they allocate over three million dollars a year to programming in the, in our city and to our agencies that are are really there to help people be safe, uh, have women be safe, uh, kids, elder and our seniors. So we, like I said, we do a lot of programming. We we spend a lot of money. Right now, we're uh, we're in, a, in the process of giving five million dollars to the schools to the school school districts uh, because of COVID. We've mm -hmm. already given uh, over six million dollars to our uh, FHSQ. What's it? F, well, let me say I don't. Know, I, I give them acronyms, but I'll go with like like Swope and mm -hmm. uh, uh, Samuel Rogers, and also. Uh, uh, Casey cares so that's so they can uh, be ready in, in case some, something happens with them. We've given over $37 million to the cities. There's 19 cities in Jackson County and from COVID monies we've given them uh, over, uh, we've given out $37 million to those cities based on population. And so we, we continue to try to reach out and, and, and really uh, continue to help our community. You know, we own uh, uh, both Truman Hospitals, uh, Truman down Medical Center downtown, and Truman East, and uh, we've given them over well, probably about thirty, thirty-three million dollars to be ready. So we just uh, anything. I think over fifty million dollars have just been been spent here in Urban Core, just uh, yeah, uh, just making sure that uh, if this virus gets any worse, then we're as prepared as we can get with our first responders and and so forth. Well, one thing that's for certain about public service and elected office, I know when anybody in your role wakes up in the morning you never know what challenge is waiting on you but <laughs> COVID has to be the the DEFCON 5 version of that talk about no way to prepare for that you know in January of 2020 when you're doing your planning for the county I mean it's just well no. COVID COVID is a COVID-19 um, is is it's a no-win situation for any elected official. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it, because it exposed every elected elected official. A lot of elected officials are happy to 
go through their term with no excitement. You know, they just want to do whatever they need to do, but no real challenges where you have to make decisions that are uh, going to be scrutinized by the public. Um, you know, but it exposed everybody from your school boards all the way up because it, it put you, everybody in a position where everybody had to make a tough decision. Uh, the school boards, the school superintendents, uh, you know, our health department has to make recommendations and, and they don't have to follow those recommendations. So, so I think anytime you take, anytime elected official puts himself ahead of public health, I think you're making a mistake uh, because I don't think public health is political. I think public health is what it is, public health. And you have to make that decision based on taking care of people. And if you're going to take a hit for that, maybe. But, but, but like I said, it's a no-win situation because uh, people just uh, have a hard time adjusting to being, being told what they can't do. Mm -hmm. And so you just try to be aware of that and you try to uh, have a lot of empathy for everyone that's involved. And, and you just want to hope that you can uh, be in a position where you can you can you know, save businesses and give people a chance to survive and, and give kids a, a safe way to return to school and, and, and so forth. So there's a lot of different aspects of this that no one's ready for. Yeah. Uh, and we're all learning every day uh, and we're all listening to the health professionals. And I think if we do that, then I think we got a better chance than uh, to take the political way to... Uh, uh, to bend to that, and, and then someone gets sick, and then you got some other issues you got to deal with at that point. So it's like I say, it's a it's a it's a new arena, and um, and from the top to the bottom, nobody was prepared, and so now we're trying to dig our way out of it. Yeah, the uh, you know the CARES Act, the federal act. I've heard several federal legislators make the analogy, and and the same is true. I have no doubt for you at the county level and elected officials anywhere. Um, trying to build a relief package and manage the best distribution of those funds mm -hmm. was like uh, trying to build a parachute after you <laughs> jumped out of the plane. You know? Well, you know, you know, the first, uh, we, we were able to get uh, COVID funding, and, and, but it was supposed to be COVID-related. And uh, so that's, that was always the dilemma is, is just verifying what's COVID-related. Mm -hmm. And you want to make sure that, uh, uh, that you make sure you don't want to misuse those funds because the feds can always come back and say, well, you have to repay uh, because you didn't use it in the proper way. Uh, so I think that uh, if the HEROES Act ever gets passed, it'll be different because then those funds can be used for revenue replacement and, and, and things like that where these funds couldn't be used for those things. So we do a lot of uh, uh, feeding programs uh, that we're uh, working on now. We got a half million dollar feeding program that's going to hopefully get off the, off the board in a couple of weeks uh, that's going to help the uh, agencies that are feeding folks on a, on a weekly basis and because uh, the need is is great and and we just want to be able to do what we can to uh, help that need and and I, I, th I think that we've done an excellent job of, uh, of managing our budget uh, you know we haven't had to furlough anyone uh, we haven't had to lay anyone off uh, I think where well, we just got to a double a rating uh bond rating so i think i think we're um we I, I my hat's off to our uh finance department and our chief administrative officer and our county administrator they've just done a great job in and making sure that budget wise working with the legislature that we're we're in pretty good shape yeah well last comment or last question for you uh, and i have to say again you've just been incredibly generous with your time with us today which we really appreciate 
parting question. Uh, my instincts tell me that you probably don't ever actually have a day where nobody has a, a demand on your time, whether it's work or family or politics or whatever. But hypothetically, hypothetically, okay. if you had a Saturday and uh, there wasn't a, a, a stakeholder group asking you to make an appearance or you didn't have a family obligation and no kids or grandkids to chase and you literally were going to spend a day uh, doing what would be the most enjoyable, fulfilling to you, what would you do? Uh, if the weather's if the weather's bad, not too hot, mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, I like to I like to uh, uh, get up, have a cup of coffee, uh, uh, just uh, spend that little long time, me time. Um, we'd like to go out and play nine holes of golf. Uh, like to come back and um, uh, I like working in the yard, uh, do some yard work, and eventually work toward the end of the evening where you just put some stuff on the grill and uh, listen to the game uh, uh, on radio uh, as I'm outside doing my, doing my thing. I, I'm not an in-house person, so I like being outside doing things. So it would be a, a definitely an R&R &R day yeah. for sure. But for my two cents, that sounds like heaven. I think that's <laughs> awesome. Well, with that, um, we, we need to, to let you get back. We've way overstayed our welcome, and you've been so gracious to let us do that. Uh, Mr. White, we sure appreciate all the time you spent and the stories you've shared. Um, thanks for all that you've done for the community, both in terms of uh, your baseball career and your public service career. It's just been a delight to get to spend this time with you. Well, thank you, Scott. Thanks for reaching out. And uh, I'm, I'm just uh, so uh, uh, happy that you guys uh, thought that I was uh, worthy of your interview. I, I mean, I think this is really good. I, this is good for me. It's great. Thank you. Well, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it, too. Um, our listeners are going to love it. And uh, with that, listeners, this has been our podcast with uh, Jackson County Executive Frank White and uh, – Kansas City Royals Hall of Famer as well, as you all know. So thank you for tuning in to this edition to the BHL podcast, and we will catch you next time. <laughs>